God, I thank you for the promises of your word and that we get the opportunity every Sunday to come in your presence and that you delight in that. When we sing, we give you praise, we give our offerings, we give you our attention as we expound your word. We're delighted that the God of the universe delights in our connection with you. And so, Father, lead us, teach us. I thank you for the promises that you give us. No matter how hard we stand on them and how hard we lean on them, they will never, ever fail or break. So we give you our praise. We now give you our attention as we unpack your word. Teach us, Spirit of the living God. And may the one who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to us, your church, in your name. Amen. Wow, that was really good. Somebody sent that song to Dave and I uh, about a month and a half ago. I'd never heard it before. And he said, we've got to use that some Sunday. And when we put this day together and this set together, we knew today was the day for that. If you were paying attention to the music this morning, you obviously saw a theme. If you begin to think back, some of the songs that you just sang, some of the words that you just shared, there's a theme to it all. Now, most of the time, Dave and I had the opportunity to do that. This is one of those days. We're going to unpack Revelation 6 to 19. Obviously, I'm not going to read it all. We're not going to deal with it all. But we are going to talk about the coming judgment of God and what that looks like and the preparation we need to be ready for that. And when you sang these songs this morning, they all talked about no matter where we're at, what we're going through, God is with us, God is our rock, God is our cornerstone, God is our redeemer, God is our rescuer. Even in the middle of the storm, God is with us. And that's really one of the things you need to carry with you as you begin over the next few weeks to walk with us in really deep waters as we unpack some of these sections of Scripture out of the book of Revelation. You have your sermon notes in front of you in the bulletin this morning. I encourage you to take them out. They are, as I've said before, a small synopsis of the message. I look over it, go over it for the last couple of weeks, spend all day Friday making sure I've got it and understand it, Saturday night for an hour or two, another hour on Sunday morning, and then I deliver it to you in 35 minutes. You're walking away going, what was that again? This is a way of helping you understand the context. When you look at where we have been in this book of Revelation over the last few weeks, there are four things that jump out at you just in the first five chapters. One is what you see in chapter one, and that statement is here. Your vision of Christ will change how you face difficulty. Your belief and your understanding of Jesus will affect every circumstance and situation you'll ever face in life, especially the most difficult ones. If you really believe that he will walk with me no matter what, even through the valley of the shadow of death, he'll never leave me or forsake me, even in the middle of the things you don't understand and some things you don't even like, you will say, I trust you. I don't like it. I don't understand it. It's not what I would have chosen. If you would have asked me, God, I would have given you my opinion, which many of us do anyhow. But your understanding of Christ, your vision of God, John is sitting on an island having no idea if he's ever going to survive, ever see life again, ever see any friend again at all. And in the middle of all of that, God shows up in the most incredible way in chapter 1. Your vision of Jesus and your understanding of who Christ is in the Word of God and in your personal life will impact how you face every uncertainty in your life, even the good things, but especially the uncertain things. If indeed you see God as distant, far away, out there somewhere, 
really not interested in what I'm going through, you either bail or walk away. If you believe that God is disinterested, isn't really that interested in your circumstances, isn't going to walk with you even through the valley of the shadow of death, is not going to stand the storm no matter what that storm may be, you may not make it through the storm, and many may even bail in their relationship with God. Now, you may not believe that theology, I'm just telling you, been around long enough to see it happen. Your vision of God will determine how you face difficulty and how you respond to the difficulty you go through. Secondly, you'll see Jesus' deep concern for the church. You don't just have to go to church on Sunday morning. You get to be a part of the church on Sunday morning. Now, you get to be a part of the church every day of your life. When you know Christ is your Savior, you're part of the church. But when you come on Sunday morning, it's not just doing church. It's not just, I have to go to church. I'm a part of this body of people. I get to go to church. I get to be a part of the church, the bride of Christ. That's how he equates us. He's the groom. We're the bride. And Jesus loves his bride. I love my bride. I'd give my life for her. Did a wedding yesterday, and I, I watched that bride come down the aisle, and the groom is crying, and I'm handing him my handkerchief, and then he hands it back because he knows I'm going to cry. And I see the love this kid has for that bride. And I think that's exactly Oh, it even pales. I shouldn't even say it's exact. It pales into comparison as to how much Jesus loves you and I as part of the church. He loves his bride. So you're not just coming to church to go to church, to do church. I have to go to church. You get to be a part of the church. Never underestimate that. Number three, you see sin and compromise in the eyes of God and destructive nature can destroy a person, a family, and a church. What you see him say in those sections of Scripture to those churches who are allowing compromise to come in is something you can't ignore. That truth is something you cannot underestimate. The sin and compromise in the eyes of God, disobeying his word, is something you cannot ignore because it will indeed destroy a family, a church, certainly even a nation. And you can't ignore that truth. It can destroy your life. And every one of us are under that attack from the enemy who certainly wants to do that. From the top on down, poor moral decisions from the guy that leads a church who stands in his pulpit has an impact on everyone else sitting in the audience. And in some cases, because we've been in ministry so long and know so many circumstances, it affects hundreds of people because of a more poor moral choice or decision, a temptation that the man who's leading the church has succumbed to. And you've heard enough of those to know that's true. Now, there are a number of people in every generation. We can talk about the millennials till Jesus comes back. But there are people in every generation who say, well, I'm not really sure if there's truth. I mean, really truth that we can solidly depend on, absolute truth. Maybe it's sin to you, but not to me. Maybe what you're doing is, is going to affect you, but it's not going to impact me. What you, and I'll show you in a minute on a chart, but what you need to understand, there are some biblical absolutes, and there are truths according to the Word of God. And what you have to decide is, do I really know that I believe in this truth? And if I do believe in this truth, I will live my life according to that belief. Otherwise, I'll do my own thing. And what you'll have to guard is, you will become your own God. And that's only two choices. 
You will either believe and follow the God of the universe, or you will make your own decisions. You'll follow the enemy, certainly, but you will then become your own God because you will determine what are the standards I want to live my life by. So you can't underestimate that truth in number three. And then finally, number four, worship around the throne and adoration and giving praise to God will be and is incredible. And what we do on Sunday morning when we sing songs like this and listen to a song like that is we just get a little glimpse of what it's going to be like. Somebody said to me last Sunday morning, and I'll pick up on it in a few weeks, seriously, like forever, all we're going to do is sing? I mean, after a while. And I get that, but the opportunity we have to join with hundreds of thousands of angels down through the ages that have given praise to God, it's just not something we do because there are words on a screen or songs that we know. Man, we get to worship God. And last week just gave you a little glimpse of that. And then we gave you the opportunity to take it home and sing with those kinds of songs that we sang. Now, that's just the first five chapters. Revelation, by the way, you notice is 22 chapters long. And somehow I naively thought, okay, we've got all the things that I was doing up to Easter. We're going to talk about the cross and the resurrection and everything that goes with that. After Easter, I think before I take my vacation in July, I'll do the book of Revelation. Now, some of you may didn't think one way or the other. Others of you thought, how naive is this boy, and how long has he been doing church? Because we're not going to get it done, but we're going to keep rolling because there are some incredible things that God wants to teach us. Now, so far, these first five chapters have been somewhat easy to understand, right? For those of you who have been with somewhat easy to understand. Right? You understand who Jesus is. You, you get it when he talks to the church. You know about churches. You see churches. You know what sin does. You know what uh, he says is good. You know how to deal with all of that. You know what worship sounds like. You get to participate in it. All of that's been somewhat easy to understand. That stops today. Now, I'm glad you're still here. Don't leave yet. Okay? But now, it's going to get a little bit more confusing, and we could, if we're not careful, get into some controversy because... A lot of what's said in, well, even chapter 4 on, but a lot of what's said in these next number of chapters leads a lot of different churches and denominations to take different views on this particular subject and all the subjects we're going to deal with. And that's what we don't want to get into is the debate and, and the differences and the divide that comes with our understanding of the book of Revelation. I thought the other day, I don't think anybody in a given congregation realizes the complexity of the diversity of an audience on a Sunday morning, right? There are some of you here that have studied Revelation all your life. You know who Gog and Magog is. Others of you are going, is he lost his mind? I don't even know what those words are. There are some of you who've been studying Revelation. You know it inside and out. You know all about it. Others of you have never really read one whole book of the Bible, let alone this book that's so difficult to understand. And let me, let me give you an example. Let me give you a little test, okay? Did it in the first service, and it proved what I wanted. This is one of those that you really do have to raise your hands. I know most of you don't like to raise your hands for anything because you don't feel, I'm not Pentecostal. I'm not raising my hands. No, you have to raise your hands on this one, okay? We sing a song here every once in a while called The Reckless Love of God, all right? If you've been here long enough, you've heard the song. Powerful song of God's passionate desire to call us his children, in that reckless love of God, we sing a phrase like this, overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves in 99. 
How many of you know what leave the 99 means? I want you to raise your hand. How many of you don't? Almost the same in the first service. A little bit more half in the first service didn't know what that meant. We sing the song. We sing the phrase. We don't know. That's one example of what I'm trying to say. Our Sunday morning audience is so complex in regards to this subject. And my responsibility is to try to somehow reach the middle. That leaves the 99 as a reference to one of Jesus' stories in the New Testament. Where he says, you have no idea how much I love those who are lost. I came. I came to seek and save the lost. Who are lost without Jesus. Who are lost without God. Matter of fact, I, I, I love that so much. I'll search so much. If I have 100 sheep and one of them gets lost, I'll let the other 99 stay in the pen so that I can do everything I can to find that one that was lost. And that's what that phrase is all about. But many of you, one-third of this audience, almost half of the first audience, sing the phrase, have no idea what it really refers to. And what I'm about to share can be really complicated, and I don't want you to get lost in information overload. Years ago, Connie did a, a thing for our teachers of Howard Hendricks. I mean, in our last church, so I'm talking 30 years ago. And one thing that stood out to me forever until I'm done ministry or lose my mind, which I never know which one's going to come first. He said, you as a teacher, and every teacher has a choice to make. You can either teach information or you can teach students. You get the difference between the two? You can either teach information or you can teach students. Which means if you don't get the information, if you don't understand the information, doesn't matter how much I've given, it, given to you, if you can't process it and understand it, I still have failed. Even though I've given you all the information. And some teachers will say, I've given you the information. It's your responsibility what you do with it. My hope is that I teach students. On a given Sunday morning, you never know how many pages I have. I never know how many pages I have. They never know how many pages I have until they get the script. In the first service this morning, I realized I had 20 pages of material. And somewhere in the middle of the morning, and most likely in the middle of the sermon, that came back to my mind, and my hope to you this morning is not that I teach all 20 pages of material or I get to every line on those sermon notes, but that you receive one of the most incredible pieces of information that I'm going to give you at the end that could change your life and save your life for all of time. If I get through all 20 pages, fine. I won't. I know I didn't in first service. But if you get what I'm about to share and the unpacking of this information and the implications of that, it literally could change your eternal destiny. Do you understand the importance of that? That's why it's not about information. It's about teaching students. When we unpack these sections from chapter 6 to chapter 19, there is so much going on that if we explore every nuance and try to figure out every aspect of it or explain every piece of it, a lot of us will get lost and miss some of the points. Things like the seals and the bowls and the trumpets and the tribulation and whether or not the church gets out before the tribulation or after or in the middle of it. When does the rapture take place? The literal reign of Christ on earth. The nature and timing of all of these events. If we divide over that, we'll miss the essence of the major things that God wants to teach us. And I learned a long time ago, you got to major on the majors and minor on the minors. Don't 
major on the minors and get so lost in the information that you miss the point. There's a lot of people that will take a dispensational view of all the book of Revelation. How many of you know what dispensationalism is? All right, half a dozen of you. That's amazing. Essentially what it does is take the entire book of Revelation and divide it in segments so it gets easier to understand. They'll take 119. You have it on the screen. Take your Bibles out, turn to chapter 1, verse 19. If indeed you understand the book of Revelation through a dispensational view, you'll look at this verse and you'll say, oh, I understand all of Revelation now, just based on that one verse. This is what Jesus says to John. I want you to write. I want you to write what you have seen. That's Jesus, chapter 1. What is now the churches, because they were in existence. That's chapters 2 and 3. And what will take place later? Later after what? The rapture, when the church leaves, after the end of the church age, and the events that will take place later. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, he's still referring to the last this in that verse that I read to you a moment ago. After this, I saw Jesus, I saw the church, I understand what he's saying to the churches. After this, I looked up, and there before me was a door standing in heaven, and a voice had a, that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, similar to what he heard in the first verse, chapter, and it says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. What's the this? The church, right? So that's where all theologians, and when I grew up, it was Dissing Thunder and Thief in the Night, Tim LaHaye basically came out with a Left Behind series. Y'all remember Left Behind series? Which means what? If you don't know Jesus, you're going to get what? Left Behind. Pretty novel approach, right, to the title. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to let behind. There's going to come a day when the church of Jesus Christ, who knows Christ as Savior, disappears. Exactly the way Jesus did on the cross. You want to make sure if you know when it is, you're not flying that day and your pilot's a believer. Okay? Or driving a bus, the bus driver, that's what it's depicted in all those movies. In my day, it was Distant Thunder and Thief in the Night. In the 90s, or I don't know, when, when did Left Behind come out? 90s or year 2000s, somewhere there, the last 15 years or so. That's what they're depicting is that event. And so they're saying there's going to come a day, and they'll define it based on this understanding of Scripture and how it lays itself out so that when I look at this book, I'll say, okay, there's Jesus. We know about him. There's the church. And when the church age ends, we're all going to heaven. Us pre-tribbers, you pre-tribbers are going to first bus. We're out of here. The rest of you are what? Left behind. And you're going to face the wrath of God. That's essentially what it's all about. Now, the phrase rapture is not a word that appears in Scripture. A concept does. It came out in the early mid-1800s. Uh, John Darby and a man named Schofield. Any of you remember the Schofield Bible? He was the first guy that put notes in the Bible so that we could have a study note that goes with it. NIV, my study Bible, is another translation of that. It'd be the same thing. The thing that you and I need to understand is that it's notes in the Bible, not the Bible. Okay? You've got to remember, when you look at these notes, they are notes in the Bible, not the Bible. I say that for this reason. There are a lot of people that read books on end-time theology, and then they'll say, this is what it says. This is the truth. This is what's going to happen. It's a book somebody's interpretation or deduction of what they see in the Word of God. There's only one author who is 100% accurate, 
and true in everything he says. And that author is God, not John, yeah, not John McNamara or Mac, 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 MacArthur or whatever, because I think he thinks he is, but no, I'm just kidding. I just really insulted somebody, and I apologize for that. There's only one author, one true guy, one guy, it's God. Everyone else does their best to help us understand, but we have to remember they're human. A lot of movie events and these kinds of events are depicted in a variety of contexts, and we need to understand how they all fit together. And this makes it a little bit difficult when you start unpacking truth that is so obscure and sometimes so materious. Let me give you a, a chart and a screen. If, if you were to go home today and Google, don't, don't do this, but if you were to go home today and Google end-time charts, you'd get a hundred of them. And some of them would be so hard, you'd have to have reading classes on top of a magnifying glass to be able to see them because there's so much information in there. And they all have different aspects to them. I chose this one because it's simplistic. It starts with the creation, the formation of Israel, the hinge point of all humanity is Christ on the cross, and then you'll see Pentecost when Jesus resurrected, the Spirit of God came down, we're in the church where that red line just went, and then all of a sudden you go to the things that you see in the book of, uh, of Thessalonians and Revelation, and it lays itself out, tribulation, millennial reign, eternity that we'll get to in the end of August. What you need to understand is two things. Number one, that cross in the middle is the hinge point of all humanity. The cross of Jesus Christ is every single thing we hold everything else to. We believe absolutely certainty that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came from heaven, lived a life, a pure life, spotless Lamb of God, gave and offered His life so that you and I can be rescued and redeemed from the clutches of the enemy. That He died on a cross, buried in a grave, rose from the dead, ascended to glory, and offers you and I eternal life. And without our understanding of the cross of Jesus Christ, nothing else is ever going to make sense. Because you'll figure it out, do it on your own, do what you think is right. The cross of Jesus Christ is the hinge point of all humanity. I say that for a number of reasons. A couple of them are these. There's a lot of people in the emerging church that don't mention the cross hardly at all. I listened to an interview day before yesterday with Robbie Zacharias who was talking about an extremely large church and an author that every one of you would know if I told you about his books, who talks about the great life that God has for us, never mentions the cross at all. The cross of Jesus Christ is the hinge point of humanity. It's what holds all of this together. And you and I have to decide, do I believe that that's true? That Jesus really is the Son of God who offers us himself forgiveness and grace and love, and when I receive him, I am absolutely certain that I'll walk into glory seeing Jesus face to face and the God of humanity will invite me in because I know Christ is my Savior. Otherwise, you'll wonder what in the world is going to happen and will I make it? And you'll hope when it's all said and done that you'll be able to see God, and you don't want to hope about that one. The rest of these events, the rapture and all that goes with that, are helping us try to understand with some of the authors as to where some of these things fit. What makes it a little difficult is this. You and I live in a Western world. We, we call this part of the universe the Western world. The Western world looks at life from point A to point Z. 
You know what I mean? So we look at life like this. Starts here, ends here. Everything else happens in this way. The Eastern world looks in, at life as a what? A cycle. The circle of life. Everything comes around. You've all done Lion King and Simba and all that stuff, right? The cir- you've all sung it because your kids love this song. And so you're singing circle of life and you don't even know that you're talking Eastern mysticism. Right? That's what they believe. The cir- life is a circle. It's a cycle. So the Western world has life and time like this. The Eastern world has life and time like this as a cycle. And the biblical view looks at life and time almost like this. Where you look at this event, down through that event, to this event, but some of the things that happen here happen back here. And when Scripture is trying to take this two-dimensional understanding in black and white print of all of these events, it's hard for us to conceive because we look at life like this, Others look at it like this, and the Scripture is looking at it like this. Now, you've just come to the point in your Sunday morning experience where you said, I needed another cup of coffee this morning before I came to this. And Lord Jesus, is it going to get this deep and this tough every Sunday? i got to decide what I'm going to do every Sunday or bring just coffee with me. Because I didn't know I was going to Theology 303. I'm still at Information 101. You got to remember, though, everybody's at a different level. So I got some people on a Sunday morning who would say, You got to get deep, man. You got to tell us what all these things represent. You got to tell us what they're all about. And I've got others who are saying, What? I don't get any of it. And some of you are saying, I got eyes glazed over. Just give me a cup of coffee and be done here. I just wanted a homily and go home because that's what you're used to, right? 20 minute homily, I feel good. Ah, that's great. I'm ready for another week. Let's go home. And sometimes it just doesn't all happen. You look at these sections of Scripture, they're really a reminder of a number of things that we cannot ignore because our life and our future depend on it. Now, all of these events in Scripture, put the diagram up there, Jay. Now, the other one, the circle. A lot of events in Scripture end up being somewhat transferred through those lines. There are some biblical absolutes. Jesus is the Son of God. That is an absolute. There is only one way to heaven. It's through Jesus. Biblical absolute. Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, offers us eternal life in himself. That is a biblical absolute. Now, there are other things that become interpretations or deductions and sometimes even preferences that some people in some churches try to make absolutes, so they end up arguing and dividing over an interpretation or a deduction or sometimes even a preference because they're trying to make them absolutes. Now, the other problem is some people don't even think there are any biblical absolutes. Well, that's what you guys believe. Again, in this interview with Ravi, he was talking about a prominent today preacher who said it's fascinating the similarities between Islam and Christianity. And Ravi said, Islam doesn't believe that God is who he says he is, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is not the only way to heaven, and that he didn't die on a cross and rose from the dead and forgive us of our sins. Where are the similarities? But there are tons of people that speak to that extent and believe 
that there are numbers of ways to heaven and that you guys, especially in evangelical churches, are just trying to be a cult to make people believe yours is the only way. It's what the Word of God says. And you and I have to decide, do we believe it? And if we believe it, then we live by it because it impacts our life and our future. The aid of Christ, the authority of Scripture, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the list is endless of all of those things. But regarding the timing and nature of these events, there's a lot of room for different views. Michael Card in his book, Unveiled Hope, said this, we cannot get so lost in the debate that we lose the hope and the joy of what's going to happen in the future. We cannot get so lost in the debate of all of these events, and whether it's pre-trib, post-trib, millennial, real millennial, life on earth millennial, and all of that, that we lose the joy of when I leave this world, whether I stay till Jesus comes back or I leave based on death, I'll see God face to face, and I'm absolutely certain of that. In chapter 7, 6 and 7 on, the title of the sermon is called The Four Horses of the Apocalypse, right? Now, what are the odds that I would be talking about horses after Justify just won the Kentucky Derby last, or the Triple Crown last night, right? I don't know if all dogs go to heaven. I'm not sure about cats. I just know there's horses in heaven, right? Y'all know that, right? And they unfold a lot of death and destruction in all of these verses. And it just keeps going and going and going. And you look at it all and you think, oh, my lands. I want to believe in pre-trib because I don't want to be here for any of that. So I want to believe that Tim LaHaye is right and we're going to get raptured and we're going because I don't want to live through any of that. This is the part that you have to get. The end of that chapter, there's going to come a, a place. Let me tell you where it's at. It's at the end of chapter 6, verse 15, when it says, The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the mighty, even the slave and the free man hide in caves, and they say, fall on us. We can't take it anymore. There's going to come a, a, a point in time where the God of the universe is going to look at the sin of humanity and say, enough is enough. It stops. And the God who judges justly is going to judge the world. And time as we know it will cease. And the judgments of God will be poured out. Count on it. When they all come, how they all come, how they all get laid out, we can debate that till he comes back. I'm just telling you. Two things are going to happen in your my life. We're going to either die because we've outlived our body's age or we're going to see the coming of Christ and we're going to heaven. And time as we know it and all these judgments and all of these events are going to unfold. One or the other is going to happen. And what you and I even in the midst of all of the things we don't quite put our hands on or quite understand, you and I have a clear decision that we need to make, and that is, do we know for absolute certain that whether it unfolds the way Scripture says here and that we're all around when the tribulation and the trouble and all of that comes, or I leave this world based on death, that I know for absolute certain that I'll see Jesus face to face. 
Because all my 20 pages don't matter if you miss that point. All my information won't matter if you don't know for sure about that event. And if you do know for sure about that event, all the information will be worth it because you know for sure. He talks about who's going to be saved from that, and it'll be those who are sealed. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses think they're the 144,000. They're the only ones who are going to get saved. There's a line in your note that it's not about arithmetic. It's about symbols and, and, and all of that. The New Testament, on a couple of occasions, I had the verses in your scripture, says, when you receive Christ as your Savior, he gives you a seal, a sign, a sealing of the Holy Spirit. A way that you know for sure. I know in my heart that I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Christ. I am a son or a daughter of the living Christ. And the Spirit of God, when you accept Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God comes in and he helps you confirm that. So that you're not sitting around wondering, what do I do now? I I don't know. Do I know for sure I want to go to heaven? I'm pretty sure I'm a believer. I, I go to church all the time. I gave money. I taught a class. None of those. You know for sure that you're a child of God because the Spirit of God says that to you in your spirit, deep in your soul, that you're a son or a daughter of the living God. He confirms that. He sets his seal upon you so that you know for sure that you're a child of the living God. I am absolutely certain if I leave this world right this moment, I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to heaven. I don't have to wonder, hope, Thought I preached enough, gave enough, did enough, served enough, evangelized enough. I don't have to worry about any of that. I'm doing my absolute best to do all of those things. But I'm certain I'm going to see Jesus face to face. Are you that certain? So that's what you want to know. There's a, there's a question. Remember I always save a question to the end so you don't check out too early? The question is this. I have one for you that says, are you sealed? The question that you don't have there is, are you sure? Are you sealed? Whatever happens, however it unfolds, all this judgment and all of those things that are unbelievably powerful and overwhelming, you haven't seen anything yet. Remember I said last week in regards to worship, you haven't seen anything yet when you see Imagine Heaven. You haven't seen anything yet, no matter what you think you know, whatever you've seen on TV. You haven't seen anything yet when you see the judgment of God to say enough is enough. 2,000 years ago, Peter said, look, you guys have been saying that forever. And if Peter was living today, he said, you've been saying it for 2,000 years. God's coming back. Jesus is going to return. The world's going to come to an end. There's going to come a day, and all of that is true. But you don't believe it. And sadly, you forget that God already did that once in the flood. He'll do it again. But he's waiting. He, He just hasn't poured out that final wrath yet because he doesn't want you to miss it. He wants you to be there. He doesn't want anyone to perish. But even that God of the universe who doesn't want anyone to perish, at some point is going to say, it's over. It is over. And that, my friends, is a biblical absolute. And that, my friends, is the one thing you really want to be sure about. So regardless of when it happens or how it happens or how it plays out, Are you absolutely certain that you are a child of God? I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of the King. I know it. I I don't have to wonder, hope. I know it. 
His Spirit identifies with our spirit, what it says in Romans, that we are a child of God. Do you know for sure? Father, we thank you for your word. It's hard, difficult at times, sometimes so mysterious, and sometimes it divides. But the things that are the majors, the most important, you're really clear about. And I'm grateful for that. And so my friends and family, as I said last Sunday morning, don't want them to miss it. My friends and family that are sitting here this morning, I want to make sure that every single person that hears my voice speak is sure. Any of you have the courage to raise your hand this morning to say I'm unsure? So I can pray for you? Okay. All right. God, you know where we're at. And you know how we can be sure that we receive you as our Savior, confess our sins, invite you into our life, turn our life over to you, and know for sure that we are sons and daughters of the living God. I thank you for the courage of these. I trust that as we continue to move forward, we'll deepen our walk with you and deepen our confidence and faith in you. I have no idea, no matter how long I've been doing this, exactly what the future holds, but I know you hold it in your hand, and I trust you in all of that. In your name we pray. Amen. Next Sunday is Father's Day. I'm going to preach a message next Sunday that you've probably, you all heard Father's Day messages, but it will be one that you've probably never heard before because it's going to be out of Revelation. Now, if you trust me and come, it'll make sense. But if you read ahead, even I'll tell you to do that on Friday, if you read ahead, you'll go, what on earth is he going to do with this? Trust me, I think it'll make sense if you come back. We'll see you next Sunday. If I can pray for you, for those that are uncertain, please don't leave. Come this way.